I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside Horror Show. Show. We are in Washington again this week. We are, we are. Uh, I have to say the Evergreen State has some pretty random yet entertaining laws that I was not aware of. Nice. I think it's been a while since we've had some like really good weird ones. Yep, yep. Like they've been weird, but they haven't been like, you know, to the level of weirdness that we used to have. (laughs) It's true. It's true. I'm going to start off with a couple of interconnected laws, actually. Oh, nice. So these are all geared around protecting children in the state of Washington. I mean, children are our future after all. Whitney said it best. She did indeed. So the first law, which is kind of hilarious, is that it is illegal to sell any comic book to a minor that might incite them to, quote, violence or other depraved acts, end quote. Oh, okay. I don't know what comic book would not possibly incite violence or depraved acts considering comics are pretty subversive, but yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just Superman comic books for everybody in the state of Washington. That's it. That goddamn <laughs> exactly. boy scout. Yeah, because definitely not Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing by Vertigo at all. Mm-mm, mm-mm. Alan Moore, who's that? Yeah, right. Uh, another law that is on the books in Olympia that's designed around protecting children, bars anyone under the age of 18 from entering a pool hall, which is pretty standard, I think. I mean, that's where most people bought their drugs when I was in high school, so mm-hmm. it makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, pool halls are, have always been of a less than reputable reputation mm-hmm. where things like gambling and illegal drugs would go on. So I get that part. This next law, though, I just, I don't, it's just mean-spirited. In the state of Washington... There are no lollipops. Lollipops are banned. What? Yep. But here's the ironic thing. Jawbreakers are still totally fine. That's way worse. I know. It's like, we care about children's teeth health. No lollipops. Those jawbreakers that they grind their teeth on, that sugar brick they grind their teeth on, that's fine. It is a sugar brick. And your jaw kills you after one of those things. My God. I remember when I was a kid... Oh, ow, I can still feel the pain. (laughs) I do think it's funny, though, because I can only imagine, like, people being like, well, kids shouldn't run with the lollipop sticks in their mouth. That's how they lose an eye. (laughs) Never mind those teeth they're losing. We weren't allowed to eat them in the car. Because if there was, like, a sudden stop or something, we could choke or, you know, whatever. Oh, maybe that's why lollipops got the main ban versus other hard candies in the state of Washington. Well, yeah, but I mean, if you're eating a jawbreaker in the car and the same thing happens, you you won't choke on it, but your teeth will break. True, true. Oh, so that's all right, the... because then the dentists get more money. <laughs> it's true. And then there's one other weird law that's kind of related to kids, but apparently it's illegal to pretend that your parents are rich, which I, okay. What? Yeah, sure. Don't brag that dad has a Porsche when he really has a Pinto. I don't know. My my dad is Bill Gates. Yeah. Let's see. Other weird laws in the state of Washington. So they have blue laws still. Uh, the blue laws are pretty standard, what you expect. Except for these two, which I was like, huh. Apparently it's illegal to buy a mattress on a Sunday in the state of Washington. And you also cannot buy meat of any kind on Sunday. 
It's like there goes Sunday roast. Like, ugh. Wow. Okay. I'm wondering why this is. Yeah, I couldn't find any any uh, info on why. Just that these blue laws are like still on the books. Um. Yeah, I think it's it's mostly just to keep people in line, or maybe to allow butcher shops to be closed. Who knows? Maybe, but yeah, the mattress thing. The only thing I I can think of is them being like, "Ooh, well, people might have sex on this mattress, not on the Lord's Day." <laughs> So apparently, in the state of Washington, it is illegal to sleep in a neighbor's outhouse unless you get their permission first. Why the fuck would you want to? <laughs> oh, those things smell to high heavens. I know that the simple fact that there's a law prohibiting that, like, I have so many questions. I have so many questions, yeah. Washington. Oh, yeah, Definitely. They had some wild pioneer days, I guess. Just like the refrigerator stuff. Like, it's just <laughs> real weird. So bizarre. So bizarre. And let's see. I think we can find one more weird law here for you. Here we go. In the state of Washington, it's illegal to paint polka dots on the American flag. Is that something anyone has ever done? I I don't know. But there's a law against it, so maybe? The, I mean, yeah, there has to be some sort of, like you know, prior act of polka dot vandalism. <laughs> but that's just really, really weird. You know what I'm picturing, though? Those uh, stampers when, that you used to play bingo and someone just go into town oh, on, yeah. on the flag. <laughs> I could see that, yeah. But yeah, those are our selection of some of the weird laws I came across for Washington State. That is definitely weird. All right, so yeah, they're they're up there. They're definitely up there with with some of the weirdest. For sure, for sure. So Nicole, you have a good story for us this week. I I do. I think it's a rather delightful story. I'm excited to tell you, Eden. Perfect. I am ready to hear it. So our story this week takes place in Auburn, a suburban city that's located in King County. It's part of the larger Seattle Tacoma metropolitan area. Auburn's actually the 14th largest city in Washington state, and it's home to about 87,000 residents. It's pretty sprawling, though, and it covers roughly 30 square miles. The town was established in 1886 under the name of Slaughter by Levi Ballard. That's a nice name. Yes, Slaughter. The town is... Welcome to Slaughter, y'all. <laughs> uh, but Ballard did have a reason for naming it Slaughter, it was named in honor of an army officer who was killed during the 1855 Indian Wars. However, as the town grew into a city, newer residents really disliked the name. And after the local hotel was named the Slaughterhouse. <laughs> oh, man. I wouldn't stay there. <laughs> yeah. The residents were a little upset, so they petitioned the state legislature to change the town name. Uh, the pun haters got their way, and the city was renamed to Auburn in 1893. They chose the name Auburn because it was to honor the New York town, also called Auburn, as both of the towns relied on hop farming as a large part of their agricultural economy. Okay. While hops are still grown in this area of Washington today, the main economic force in Auburn is Boeing. 
1986, the aerospace manufacturer opened the Auburn Boeing plant, which is the largest airplane parts plant in the world with over 5,000 workers who work in a 2.1 million square foot facility. That's funny because I was like, I don't know what she means by that. Let's just see. All I'm thinking of is planes and it's planes. (laughs) It's planes. Uh, The uh, Auburn Boeing plant churns out a whopping 1.2 million parts for airplanes each year. When visiting Auburn, you should absolutely check out its historic downtown. It's this interesting mix of a modern city and these sort of charming repurposed brick buildings from the 1850s on. The downtown's been revitalized in recent years to preserve a lot of the pioneer heritage and to showcase its wonderful early 1900s architecture. Each year, downtown Auburn hosts the largest Veterans Day parade and celebration west of the Mississippi. Uh, You can find a ton of dining and entertainment downtown as well. You can check out the Auburn Symphony Orchestra at the Auburn Performing Arts Center. You could stop in at the White River Valley Museum to learn all about the city's history from its Native American roots to the 1920s. Visitors can learn about the Muckleshot Indian tribe, pioneer life, immigration from Europe and Japan, farming, railroads, the building of the town all throughout this area of the Puget Sound. Plus, you can explore a recreation of a pioneer cabin, which sounds kind of awesome. That's going to be fun. Climb aboard a Northern Pacific Railway caboose and check out the recreation of the 1924 downtown Auburn shopping district. If you're looking for something more thrilling than a museum, you can spend the day at Emerald Downs, which is a thoroughbred racetrack in Auburn. It also houses the Washington Horse Racing Hall of Fame. If nature is your thing, you can visit Auburn's extensive park system. They have 28 developed parks, over 23 miles of urban trails for bikes, walking, running, skaters, and almost 250 acres of open space that you can use for all types of recreation. Quite a few notable people have called Auburn home over the years, including Baby Got Back rapper Sir Mix-a-Lot. Nice. Mm -hmm. But unlike Sir Mix-a-Lot, the subject of my story probably doesn't like big butts, and she definitely cannot tell a lie or pass a polygraph. Oh, no. This is the story of Stella Nickel. Never heard of her, Stella. Let's go. All right, let's dive in. Stella Maudine Stevenson was born August 7th, 1943 in Colton, Oregon, to George and Alva Georgia Joe Stevenson. Stella Stella grew up pretty poor, and at age 16, she gave birth to a daughter, which she named Cynthia. Soon after, she moved to California, got married, and had another daughter. Divorcing her first husband led to a lot of money troubles for Stella, and she had a few run-ins with the law while in California. But by 1974, she had moved back to the Pacific Northwest and gotten a job as a security screener at the Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Soon she met Bruce Nickel, a heavy equipment operator, and the two were married in 1976. To all appearances, Stella and Bruce were a happy couple. They lived in a trailer on a large, wooded lot in Auburn. Neighbors described her as cheerful and hardworking. But on June 5th, 1986, Bruce, who was 52, 
came home from work with a headache. He took four extra strength Excedrin capsules for his headache and stepped out onto the trailer's back deck for some fresh air. A few minutes later, he collapsed. He was rushed to Harborview Medical Center, but he died while receiving treatment. His death was initially ruled to be by natural causes, with attending physicians citing emphysema. Stella was confused, since Bruce had never had emphysema that she knew about, and despondent at his death. Six days after Bruce died, on the morning of June 11, 1986, Sue Snow, a 40-year-old bank manager who also lived in Auburn, and her husband, Paul Webking, were getting ready for work. Paul's arthritis was acting up, and Sue had a throbbing headache. Both of them took two extra strength Excedrin capsules. Paul left for work, and Sue woke up their 15-year-old daughter, Haley, before heading into the bathroom and plugging in her curling iron, because this is the 80s and big hair was a thing. Of course. Haley noticed that her mother was taking a really long time in the bathroom, so she went to check on her. She found Sue sprawled unconscious on the floor, her fingers splayed across her chest, her breathing very labored. Sue was rushed to Harborview Medical Center, but died hours later without regaining consciousness. During Sue's autopsy, the medical examiner noticed the scent of bitter almonds. Ooh, gee, I wonder what that could be. Exactly. The distinct odor of cyanide. It's good that she could actually smell it, because most people can't. I know. Subsequent testing confirmed that Sue Snow indeed died of acute cyanide poisoning. Investigators examined the content of Sue and Paul Webking's home and discovered the source of the cyanide, the bottle of extra-strength Excedrin that both she and Paul had used on the morning of Sue's death. Three of the capsules in the remaining 60-count bottle were found to be laced with enough cyanide to poison a grown adult. Wow. I think that's a shocking bit of information because it's sort of like Paul literally dodged a bullet. Yeah, definitely. When the news broke of Sue Snow's death due to cyanide-laced Excedrin, a firestorm of panic was set off in the Pacific Northwest, especially after police located another tainted bottle from the same lot in a different grocery store in nearby Kent, Washington. Bristol Myers, the manufacturer of Excedrin, immediately issued a heavy publicized recall of all extra-strength Excedrin products in the Seattle, Washington area. Everyone took this super seriously. It had only been about four years since seven people in Chicago died from taking poison Tylenol. Uh, the Tylenol was laced with potassium cyanide. The Chicago Tylenol murders were still unsolved. They're still unsolved today, actually, as well. And the public outcry actually led to new tampering laws with harsher sentences because people were terrified. I know about the Tylenol thing. I remember hearing that story before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This one's new to me, though, and very frightening because I use Excedrin migraine all the time. Me too. Nothing nothing kills a headache like Excedrin. <laughs> yeah. As the understandable hysteria spread across the country, Bristol Myers recalled all Excedrin capsules in the United States on June 18, 1986, pulling them from store shelves and warning consumers not to use any that they may have already purchased. The FBI took over the investigation of Suso's death, and the King County medical examiners began checking through recent unexplained deaths to see if there were any that could be caused by cyanide. And that's when Stella Nichols contacted the police about her suspicions that her late husband, Bruce, may also have been a poisoning victim. 
Like I already mentioned, she was kind of startled when the medical examiner determined that Bruce had died of emphysema since he hadn't had any emphysema that she knew about. But Bruce was already buried. But because he was an organ donor, a sample of his blood serum had been preserved. When the medical examiner tested the blood serum on June 19th, it showed that cyanide was indeed present in Bruce's system. Mm. Stella immediately turned over two bottles of Excedrin that she had at her home. And FBI testing showed that both bottles contained cyanide. By this time, the FBI had discovered yet another bottle of poison Excedrin from the same store where both Sue Snow and Stella Nickel had purchased Excedrin. With at least five bottles of cyanide-laced Excedrin with the same lot number out in the market, the FBI turned to Brister Myers to investigate the manufacturing plant that created these particular capsules. But their investigation cleared the plant as a source of possible contamination. Luckily, the FBI crime lab was able to take a closer look at the cyanide found in the tainted bottles, and one of their young chemists discovered something a bit unusual. The cyanide that was pulled from the bottles had these little green crystal-like flecks in them. Hmm. With some additional testing, he was able to identify the substance as an algae killer that's used by home fish tank enthusiasts. He even was able to come up with a product brand name, Algae Destroyer. Now investigators knew they were looking for someone who must have mixed the cyanide in a container that was previously used for crushing algicide pellets. FBI agents interviewed both Stella Nickel and Paul Webking again, asking the grieving spouses to take a polygraph test. Paul agreed and passed the test, eliminating him as a suspect. Stella, however, refused, claiming she was too distraught to answer any more questions about poor Bruce's death. Around this time, the FBI learned that the FDA had completed its examination of the 740,000 capsules that had been pulled from shelves in the Pacific Northwest. None of the other bottles of Excedrin contained any cyanide. It seemed really odd to investigators then that Stella Nickel just happened to have not one, but two tainted bottles, which she claimed she had purchased at different stores. That fact, along with her refusal to submit to a polygraph, made her the focus of the FBI's investigation going forward. So agents started digging into her past. And it turns out that shortly after divorcing her first husband in California, Stella had been arrested for passing bad checks and spent four months in jail on a fraud-related charge in 1968. Then, in 1969, she was charged with child abuse, reportedly hitting her oldest daughter, Cynthia, with a curtain rod, bruising the girl's legs, but she was only sentenced to counseling. Again, her money troubles led to legal troubles in 1971 when she was convicted of forgery and served six months in jail. Investigators also found out that Stella's marriage to Bruce wasn't quite as happy as it appeared. You see, when Stella and Bruce first got together, Bruce had a bit of a drinking problem, which Stella really didn't mind because she liked to party too. But eventually, Bruce went to rehab and got sober. And this really curtailed Stella's ability to hang out at bars and party. Oh, okay, so... It's not the drinking that was a problem, it's the stopping drinking that's a problem? Yep. 
so one of the articles I read quoted somebody who knew Stella saying that she confided that she found Bruce to be really boring, kind of a wet towel because she wanted to go out and drink like she always did. And he would try to convince her to stay at home with him and do sober activities. And she just wasn't having it. Wow. Okay. She grew resentful for Bruce, you know, hampering her lifestyle, of course. And she even started requesting more and more evening shifts at the Seattle Tacoma airport just to avoid spending time with Bruce at all. She also took up a new hobby. She started cultivating a home aquarium. That's not suspicious. Mm-mm. While the unhappy marriage and the coincidental hobby didn't automatically lead the FBI to assume that Stella was a murderer, they did discover that Bruce had multiple life insurance policies. Oh, okay. That's definitely not a red flag either. Mm-mm. It turns out Bruce's life insurance policies would pay out at triple the rate if his death was accidental, meaning that Stella stood to receive $176,000. It would be quite the windfall considering Stella's chronic money problems and the fact that the Nichols were about to lose their trailer. Yeah. Fun fact about accidental deaths. Did you know that poisoning's considered accidental? Um, Well, I mean... It certainly can be. So, exactly. I mean, but it's kind of situational. <laughs> exactly. So, I thought that was interesting. I didn't know that, but I'm like, hmm, okay. As the FBI dug in further, they were even able to find an employee at a pet store in Auburn who identified Stella as having purchased Algae Destroyer at the store. Dun, dun, dun. Yep. The FBI reached out to Stella again, and she denied having any extra life insurance on Bruce or to even ever using a product called algae destroyer for her home aquarium. Again, the FBI asked her to take a polygraph and Stella refused. But Stella, they already know. They already know. For someone whose name means star, you're not very bright, are you? (laughs) Interestingly enough, one of the FBI agents gave an interview years later and he said that she fell for what he likes to call the pebble on the roof technique. What the hell is the pebble on the roof technique? Well, so he describes it as you kind of talk to the suspect and you like kind of plant these little things like, hey, have you ever like, oh, did you know Bruce had extra life insurance? Did you know this algae destroyer? Have you ever used it? And it starts planting these little seeds of doubt that maybe this person that that the suspect may have made a mistake in their crime. And it starts to like wear on them, almost like a pebble falling on your roof at night, keeping you awake. And the FBI agent was probably right about this psychological tendency of guilty people because about four days after the FBI interview, Stella sort of panicked and called the agents and said that she would take a polygraph test now. Ah, so it's working. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. During the test, Stella's pulse jumped erratically when she was directly asked if she poisoned Bruce. At that point in the test, the FBI agent shut off the machine told her that she had failed the test and that she was their main suspect. Stella immediately lawyered up. The detectives continued to run down leads over the next six weeks, but then they got a really big break in the case. Stella's adult daughter, Cynthia, contacted them. Now, the FBI had already talked to Cynthia back when Bruce died, and she had defended her mother, but... Cynthia had learned that her mother had failed the polygraph test, and that started giving her second thoughts. 
You see, for years, Stella had complained to her daughter about Bruce and how much she wanted him gone. She wouldn't initiate a divorce because Stella didn't want to lose any assets like the trailer. She even talked about hiring a quote-unquote hitman to shoot Bruce or run his car off the road. Of course she did. She confided in her daughter Cynthia that she even tried to poison Bruce once with toxic seeds, but it only made him drowsy. Let me know what those toxic seeds are because I need help going to sleep. (laughs) A few months after his death, Cynthia said that Stella had begun talking about researching cyanide at the library. When Stella. Stella. When her mother had told Cynthia about Bruce's death, she said that Stella had looked at her hard and said, quote, I know what you're thinking and the answer's no, as in I didn't kill Bruce. So Cynthia believed her mother and kind of stifled her suspicions, but then the polygraph results really revived them for her. While she wasn't the perfect witness, she and Stella had a pretty fraught relationship. Cynthia did agree to testify against her mother as long as execution was off the table. The FBI readily agreed. Agents turned their attention to the Auburn Public Library to see what books Stella was checking out. And it turns out she had checked out some suspicious volumes, including one called Deadly Harvest. Deadly Harvest. Deadly Harvest, which is a plant all about local toxic plants. She had checked that out twice before Bruce's death. And then there was her overdue library book, a little volume called Human Poisoning. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Stella, you're not covering your tracks at all. Mm -mm. Uh, FBI agents examined Deadly Harvest, and they also checked out some of the other reference books that contained information about arsenic. And their analysis revealed that in the books, Stella had handled them quite heavily. They found 84 fingerprints of Stella's, with the biggest concentration being on any pages that discussed cyanide. Wow. Okay. Yep. With the library evidence in hand, which I love so much that it was library books that (laughs) were like the final piece of the puzzle for them. And they say no one goes to the library anymore. (laughs) On December 9th, 1987, Stella was indicted by a federal grand jury on five counts of product tampering, including two which resulted in the deaths of Bruce and Sue Snow. She was arrested the very same day. She went to trial in April 1988 and was found guilty of all charges on May 9th, after five days of jury deliberation. Stella's legal team sought a mistrial on the grounds of jury tampering and judicial misconduct. Uh, One of the jurors had actually been a plaintiff in a case involving a pill baked into a Prefridge Farm goldfish cracker. What? Yeah. Very weird case. And that's like another tampering uh, civil case. And, well, that pill in the Prefridge Farm goldfish cracker was inevitably deemed a manufacturing error. The defense lawyers thought that that was enough of a connection to product tampering that that juror was poisonous no pun intended and (laughs) therefore should have been uh, eliminated from the jury selection uh however the appeals court denied that motion i would have probably denied it too yep yep 
Stella was eventually sentenced to two terms of 90 years in prison for the deaths of Bruce and Sue Snow and three 10-year terms for other product tampering charges. All the sentences were to run concurrently, and the judge ordered Stella to pay a small fine and forfeit her remaining assets to the families of her victims. Wow. Yep. Stella has continued to maintain her innocence and has unsuccessfully appealed her conviction a couple of times, including in 2001. She was denied parole in 2017, and as of April 2019, Stella has been housed at the FEMA-only low-slash-minimum-security Federal Correctional Institute in Dublin, California, which is just east of San Francisco. Her current release date is given as July 10th, 2040, which would make her the ripe old age of 97 at that time. Wow. Yep. So that is the tale of Stella Nichols, Excedrin Poisoner, Not So Extraordinaire. Yeah, she wasn't very good at committing crime, was she? Mm -mm. But the interesting thing, it's like her greed kind of got her in the end. Like if she had just remained quiet about Bruce's death, admittedly, she probably would have only got like thirty or forty thousand dollars, but she wouldn't be in jail. Yeah. So not that we condone that, but <laughs> just saying. Uh -uh. While she was inspired by the Chicago Chicago land Tylenol murders, she did not follow the playbook. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I mean, she definitely did not know how to cover her tracks one little bit. No, no. And I just think it's so fascinating because this is a great example of just some of the police work that the FBI does because they're more used to handling cases of this capacity versus what we see a lot, which is like local police trying to solve a murder. Yeah. And just the psychological tools that they'll use are a little bit different. Yeah. Well, thank so, you for that story, Nicole. Yeah, you bet. Uh, my sources were Wikipedia, ExploreAuburn.com, SeattleTimes.com, History.com, YakimaHerald.com, and Reader's Digest. Awesome. Well, we are going to take a quick break uh, and not have any poisoned Excedrin. Um, and we will be right back. And we're back. And I do have a fun news article for everybody. This comes from Huffington Post, and the headline is North Dakota woman charged after bringing raccoon into bar. <laughs> what if it was her service animal? <laughs> wow, that's, that's one, her one angry service animal. Her emotional support raccoon. <laughs> They've got to be bad at their jobs. <laughs> I love them and they're cute and everything, but God. So tell me more about this trash panda. I will. It happened in Maddock, North Dakota. A woman who brought a wild raccoon into a North Dakota bar, which prompted state health officials to issue a warning about potential rabies exposure, is facing criminal charges. Aaron Christensen, 38, of Maddock, is charged with misdemeanor counts of providing false information to law enforcement, tampering with physical evidence, and unlawful possession of fur bearers. Fur I thought bearers. it said fur babies at first, but it says fur bearers. <laughs> wow, that's quite the litany of charges. <laughs> it is. Christensen was arrested last week after authorities found her and the raccoon by serving several search warrants in and around Maddock. 
Christensen said her family found the raccoon on the side of the road about three months ago and named it Rocky. (laughs) She said they were nursing the animal back to health with plans to release it back into the wild. It's illegal under North Dakota Board of Animal Health Laws to keep a wild raccoon. Authorities euthanized the animal all, and it tested negative for rabies. Christensen took Rocky to Maddock Bar on September 6th during happy hour and showed the raccoon to customers. Bartender Cindy Smith said the animal never bit anyone at the bar. Nevertheless, North Dakota's Health and Human Services Department issued a warning asking anyone who may have been bitten or had contact with the raccoon saliva to seek medical care. (sighs) And that is the end of the article. Yeah, that's... A perfect example of maybe people taking the care of wild animals into their hands in the wrong way. Yeah, I mean, it's great if she was trying to nurse it back to health, but then also don't bring it to a bar. Yeah, that's not quite, it's like, I don't want it, I don't think that's good for the animal and definitely not good for the other bar patrons, but like, seriously, yeah. that sounds super stressful for the animal. It does. It really does. Mm-mm. But that has been the news. And now, I have a story. My story for this week takes place in Snohomish, Washington. Snohomish is named for the Snohomish River, which it is situated near. It was originally called Katyville when it was founded in 1859 and was renamed in 1871. It was at one point the county seat of Snohomish County, but that's been changed now to Everett since 1897. It has a population of 9,098 people and an area of 3.72 square miles, making it pretty small, but still a cool place nonetheless. And if you're wondering about all the Snohomish, Snohomish, Snohomish names, it's because of the native tribe that originally lived there. So for starters, the downtown area is actually on the National Register of Historic Places and is known for their antique stores. From what I've seen of things to do, most of them seem to focus on walking trails, which there were a lot of, including Centennial Trail and Lord Hill Regional Park. One of my favorite things was a review I saw for Lord Hill Regional Park, where it said, quote, watch out for horse poop, end quote. (laughs) If you enjoy swimming and also want to avoid said horse poop, you can go to Snohomish Aquatic Center which has a variety of places you can swim, ranging from a regular pool, kiddie pool, lap pools, a surfing pool, a hot tub, a lazy river, etc. Okay. Someone also, yeah, there's a lot. Someone also said there was a saltwater pool, too. Mm. There's also swimming lessons and exercise classes and even water basketball. I don't really know what water basketball is, but why not? Yeah, I mean, my question is mostly how the heck does one dribble in water? But I guess, I guess we'd have to play to find out. Exactly. Yes, that would be, you know, it's one of life's many great questions. Um, (laughs) Why are we here? How do you dribble in water? Yes. Do penguins have (laughs) knees? Lots of things. Um, Most everything I found that wasn't antiquing was outdoors. However, if you want to get a drink, you can always check out the Skip Rock Distillery, which I hear has nice apple cider, okay. or you could drink some spirits while hanging out with some spirits at our location for the week, the Oxford Saloon. 
Mm, okay. Spooky bars. I'm about it. Exactly. The building the Oxford Saloon is in was built in 1900 and was originally Blackman's Dry Goods. The original owner came all the way from Maine to open his business here, but he actually lived in California at first, from what I saw. Okay. It became the Oxford Saloon in 1910, and since then, it has had quite a lot of owners, and during Prohibition, it was the Oxford Pool Room. It is the oldest saloon in Snohomish. Once opening as a saloon, they added a vestibule and converted an upstairs area, which was meant to be a boarding house, but rumor has it a woman named Catherine or Kathleen, depending on the source, who was a local businesswoman, ran a brothel out of it, which for the time sounds totally believable and is far from the only seedy thing going on at the saloon. I feel like that's businesswoman in air quotes. Yeah, I, I would <laughs> say too. The basement of the saloon was where the card games and gambling would take place. And as we all know, where money and cards are concerned, people don't always show the best side of themselves when losing. There were lots of fights here and even shootings and stabbings. It's reported that around 10 people died in this building, including a well-documented case of a local police officer who was a regular at the saloon by the name of Henry. Henry was also possibly a part-time bouncer at the saloon, from most accounts that I found, as well as policeman and patron. That makes sense. Like, I figure if he's a policeman, he's probably a pretty physically imposing dude, so being a bouncer exactly. makes sense. Henry's death occurred one night when a fight broke out on the basement stairs and Henry tried to put an end to it. He ended up being stabbed several times and died on the stairs. Catherine or Kathleen was also found dead on the second floor and was found decapitated in one of the bathtubs, and that bathtub is still there today. Oh, Jesus. Yep. Although the one thing, the one source that I used said, we're not sure if this was murder or suicide. She was decapitated. <laughs> um, wow. Not yeah. my first choice of suicide options. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. I mean, that's ambitious for a suicide. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think that you'd get all the way through. Mm -mm. I think you'd die before. Yeah. Um, another girl named Amelia died here as well. Amelia was one of Catherine's sex workers. But the story goes that she was not there by choice and had been sold into sex slavery. Mm. Amelia's body was found in one of the closets on the second floor with a broken neck. Yikes. Which also, they say, might be murder, might be suicide. I'm still leaning more toward murder, though. Yeah, I'm going to go with murder as well. Today, the saloon is still open. Uh, like I had mentioned earlier, it had switched hands many times over the decades, but is still loved by many. The current owners said they did not believe in ghosts before buying this place, but are believers now. My picks from the menu that I would love to try are as follows. There's a burger called The Ghost. And it is a burger with applewood smoked bacon, ghost pepper cheese, and poblano puree. Going to be spicy as hell, but I love to torture myself. There's also a cheesesteak that sounds good because the roll has melted garlic butter on it. There's also a prosciutto mac and cheese that sounds so good because I love mac and cheese and prosciutto. So together, I'm sure they're amazing. 
There is a truffle oil on that, which I've never had, and I hate mushrooms, so I don't know that if that'll go over well with me, but I'll still try it. You've had truffle oil on stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends on how heavy-handed the chef is. It's not totally gross, and honestly, with truffle oil, a lot of times the flavor disappears before you can uh, <laughs> really get offended by it. Nice. Okay, so I'll still have that mac and cheese then, definitely. Mm-hmm. I could not find a drink menu, um, so I don't know if they have any fun special drinks. I did see one shot, however, that was a watermelon Jolly Rancher, which would be a bit too sweet for my taste. Fair enough, fair enough. Looking at pictures of this building, you do get the Wild West feel from the outside, which is mostly because of the top floor. The downstairs is very much like any pub or bar with wall-to-wall windows in front. Inside, it reminds me of bars I've been to around here, and I imagine it being dark and smoky, even though I know that's not usually a thing anymore, but it's all wooden and just looks very homey to me, and very much like like a good old-fashioned dive bar. Gotcha. That sounds delightful. There are all the old tavern signs from past incarnations of the saloon, as well as this creepy mannequin high up, which is supposed to be Catherine or Kathleen. A video on their website did say the environment is family-friendly during the day, and then at night you have the live bands and dancing for the adults. Okay. I guess the ghosts find it homey as well, since they, there are still quite a few of them hanging around. First, there's Henry, the policeman slash bouncer, who still haunts the area where he died. People have seen and felt him on the stairs of the basement. And there's also a nice picture of him hanging on the wall, too. Henry is also a bit of a dick, because (laughs) he also likes to haunt the women's bathroom and pinch women, but usually goes away when confronted, according to the article I read. So he's a perv, but a cowardly perv, is what I'm hearing. Exactly. Henry, the cowardly perv. Catherine also haunts the upstairs and is seen wearing a purple dress and bow, and she just kind of like walks around, I guess. Amelia also haunts the saloon, and there are some very contradictory claims here uh, of her spirit, unless she just likes some people and not others. Some accounts says she is a ghost that makes people feel calm and comforted, while others say they've been grabbed by her. Yeah. It's really creepy because they say that they see these hands come out of the walls and grab them. What the fuck? That's super creepy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Not something I want in my life. Nels Peterson, who owned the bar from 1923 to 1938 before selling and buying another bar to distance himself from the murders, which all took place during his time as owner, is also said to haunt the bar and is seen as a man in a hat. I believe it was a, um, not a fedora, what's the other one I'm trying to think of? A bowler Bowler hat. Mm. He was said to smoke cigars, and customers have mentioned the smell of cigars randomly happening in the bar. And I don't think anyone can smoke in there. Interesting. His family said they went there for lunch one day, and they all took a family photo, and in the developed picture, they could see him standing with them. Wow, that's creepy, but kind of sweet. 
Exactly, yeah, and his picture is also on the wall, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. It isn't just family members either, as he seems to love to photobomb people. (laughs) Others have reported seeing shadows moving across the walls of this place that don't belong to anyone on this earthly plane. Fun stuff. One person said they lived in an apartment right next to the bar, and they were smoking a cigarette outside when they could hear a lot of noise coming from the bar past 2 a.m., which sounded like a party. When he went to check it out, he could see movement of shadows from inside under the door. He knocked on the door, and suddenly there was nothing from inside. Hmm. He went for breakfast there the next morning and asked the owner about it, who said he shut down around 11, and all the security systems were on and not tripped. He told him it must have been the ghosts having a shot or two. Wow. The owner's just like, yeah, it happens. (laughs) Exactly, yep. I love it. A guest also said they took a picture of the stairs in the basement and something flew in front of them almost like a cloud. Hmm. They looked at the picture and nothing was on it, but then they remembered that it was a live photo. And when they looked through the live photo, they said there were orbs in the picture. They also said when they left to go antiquing, here's where it gets real weird. They left to go antiquing and were at the antique mall and they turned around for three seconds and then looked back the direction they were going. And there was randomly a stuffed bunny with a handlebar mustache directly in their path that had not been there a few seconds earlier. What the fuck? Yeah. They felt like something had followed them from the bar and immediately bought sage to burn. (laughs) I mean, good for them. Yeah. Others have reported objects flipping over on their own and weird sounds coming from the bar and random cold spots. One guy said he experienced quite a bit of activity there, but loves it anyway. He said his table was moved on its own and he was randomly touched on the back over and over. His wife said she kept seeing a woman's arm coming out of the wall uh, out of the corner of her eye as well. So that's another person seeing Amelia doing the arm thing. (laughs) Fucking creepy. Mm. There's also EVP I was told about, but I could not find it anywhere. I checked YouTube. I didn't see anything. Uh, So, Nicole, do you want to eat some good food, have some good drinks, and get touched by some ghosts? Ugh, As long as that Amelia keeps her hands to herself. Right. And also, don't forget about Henry. Well, I'll just, you know, wait to lose the bathroom. I'll go and pack. I'll wait till there's other ladies, other ladies going to the bathroom, then I'll go. <laughs> you can use someone's outhouse if you don't sleep in it. <laughs> fair point, fair point. <laughs> My sources for this week were Wikipedia, onlyinyourstate.com, OxfordSaloonSnohomish.com, EverettPost.com, TripAdvisor, SeattleTerrors.com, and PuzzleBoxHorror.com. Well, thanks for that story, Eden. Um, I'm definitely going to ask some of my coworkers who I know live in that area if they've ever been to the pub before, because I feel like I've heard uh, quite a few people spending time in Sohomish, So Awesome. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to go there. Like I said, I want to try that ghost burger and that <laughs> mac and cheese. I guess that brings us to the end of our episode, our end of our visit in Washington State. That it does. If you liked what you heard today, 
please remember to subscribe and then, you know, like or review us on whatever podcast listening app you use. If you would like to learn more about us or our previous episodes, uh, feel free to stop by our website, which is roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. You can also check out our social medias. We're on Facebook and Instagram as Roadside Horror Show and Twitter as Roadside Horror, although I don't think anyone has touched that Twitter account in forever. Mm-mm. I'm so nervous when I tweet, so I probably haven't. I just, I just, you know, <laughs> I don't like sharing my inner thoughts with the whole world because I feel like I'm going to, you know, regret it. <laughs> well, with the, ca- with the um, character limit, you can pretty much only tell people what you ate that day and that you took a shit, so. <laughs> Fair enough. No one needs to know that about <laughs> our show. Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and if social media is not your thing, you can always reach out to us via email. Uh, we can be found at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. We'd also like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our logo and E. Massey for our intro and outro music. Until next time, Roadsters, creep, creep on, on, creep, creep on. on.